Good morning, Cross Point. Hope you guys are doing well. And kids, you can be released. Uh, your teachers will be in the back corner waiting for you as you guys go to Children's Church. And the rest of us are going to be actually starting a brand new series for since January, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to pick that back up. But for the next eight weeks, we're doing a series that we've titled A Fight for Joy. It's overcoming, walking in the victory that we have in Christ over the patterns of sin. But if this is what we're being called to, a fight for joy, the question is, what exactly are we fighting for? Like, right? Like, what is joy? What do we mean by that? What are we moving toward together as a congregation? And so, this week, my wife and I were in the kitchen, and so I asked her a question. I was like, does God want you to be happy? Like a question, if you think about this morning, does God want you to be happy? Now, she didn't immediately respond, right? You, you can see the wheels turning, and, and she's wondering, am I asking a trick question, <laughs> right? How do I answer this? Because I feel like there's ways this can go off the rails, and there's ways I don't want to just say no. And so she very wisely then was like, what do you mean by happy? And it's a great question, isn't it? Like when we think about joy, sometimes joy and, and happiness we think of as the same thing. And happiness can just be reduced to this temporary emotional state of, I'm happy, I'm content in this moment. Is that all that God cares about? And so I gave her this definition, that the better word, the biblical word, isn't just happiness, but joy. And so if we define that, does God want us to be filled with joy? Joy in being defined as the peace in our spirit, this foundational, abiding, abounding peace in our spirits as we abide in God's character, in nature, in who He is. Does God desire that of us? Does He desire joy for the believer? Now, hopefully, with that definition, you would resoundingly say, yes. Uh, of course, like think about First Thessalonians 5 verse 16, you'll see these verses up on the screen, like always be joyful, always, always be full of joy in the Lord. This, this joy that the peace in our spirits through abiding in God's character and nature, always be full of joy in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Paul prayed for the church. I pray that God, the source, the substance of hope, will fill you completely, overflowing, abounding with joy, with peace, because you trust in Him. You see that the psalmist pray in Psalm 51 after sinning against God. He's like, Lord, restore my joy in You. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. It was something that, that was prayed for, something God desires in us. That God desires, He not only, I would say, desires our joy, He commands it. Right? That, that he, he is the source of our joy. He's the subject of our joy. He's the supplier of our joy. He's the sustainer of our joy. That we're fighting for something, moving towards something that God wants for us, desires for us. But then the question is, 
what in the world went wrong? Right? Like, if this is true, why in the world are Christians not the most joyful people in all the world? Right? Like, why do you have Christians who are, are bitter, who are angry, who are envious, who are judgmental? Why at times do we feel like our heart is withering on the vine? Like we're dying inside. And, and yet we see this, this command, this call to be joyful in the Lord. And yet it's like, in reality, I don't always feel this. My heart, the affections, I don't always experience the peace. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? What does that look like? How am I doing that or not doing that? This is what we will explore over the, the next eight weeks together. And there's an image I want us to kind of have in our minds that I want to continue throughout this series to see that your heart is a garden before God, a garden into which God has placed the purest of seeds, a, 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 a garden that he desires to see grow, to see flourish, to see fruit bearing out. The question is, are, are we watering the garden of our heart with the living water? Or are we just depending on ourselves? Like, you're going to see a picture up on the screen that this is the garden to the side of my house. We have a little square foot garden to the side of the house that we've started. I'm, I'm growing some jalapenos for some poppers, tomatoes, because some people like those, which I do not, and then herbs for my steaks right? Like this is all that's in my garden. But a little bit ago, the, the tomato plant, when I first planted it, was withering. It, it was completely wilted. The bottom leaves were dry. And you'll see to the left of the garden, I have connected to the faucet, this timer with an irrigation hose. And so I'm like, what in the world's going on? And so I went out and when I was checking the garden, what I realized is when our lawn service was trimming next to the house, the trimmer cut the hose. So the timer was going, and the grass around the garden was growing gangbusters, right? The weeds are growing, the grass is growing, and the garden is dying. And I think this is what it means when we talk about a fight for joy. What does it mean to abide in Christ? That the same thing is true of our hearts. The same thing is true of what we mean by abiding in Christ. If we, if we think of, you'll see it up on the screen, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. We see this illustrated in God's Word, where, where God says, for my people, they've committed two evils. There's two evils that happened. On the one side, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. That, that this word to, to forsake is to abandon, to be cut off like the hose that has been disconnected from the faucet. There's been a forsaking, an abandonment of God. It's the opposite of abiding. We're called to abide in Christ, in God, the source of our living water, the fountain of living water, the faucet of living water. But we abandon that. But not only that, that's one evil. We become disconnected. But if you go back to that picture of the garden, 
for some reason, and to be honest, I have no idea how it got there, why it's there, and why I haven't moved it, is that orange Home Depot bucket. It's just there. And I left it in the picture when I took it yesterday because it works great for the illustration. Because what would you think of me if when that hose got cut, I stuck the, the broken end of the hose inside that empty bucket? And I, and I was like, that's going to take care of it, right? My, my garden w- will be healthy now. It's going to grow. I'm a fool, right? You'd be like, just reconnect it to the faucet. Why are you putting the hose into an empty bucket? But this is exactly what the passage says in Jeremiah. The one sin is that we've been cut off. We no longer abide in Christ, but we, we abandon that. But then we place our hope, the joy, the satisfaction in an empty bucket. It says, they've hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, a bucket with holes in it. And then you're going to look to that for your joy, for for your satisfaction? You're you're going to seek to to nourish the garden of your heart in an empty bucket? And so what we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks is the empty buckets that the Scripture talks about, the kinds of things that we trust in as people other than God, the things that, that we look to for our joy, for our satisfaction, for our hope, for the purpose of my hope is that it helps us examine our hearts. Where am I trusting, ridiculously as it may be, in this empty bucket when I'm being invited to abide? That the fight for joy is not that we sin less. It's not just that we do better be a better person. That is not the moral of these next eight weeks. The call is to abide in Christ, Him as our living water, to allow His Spirit to work through us, in us, that our hearts and spirit would flourish and find their satisfaction in Christ, in Christ alone. This is the call. This is what I want us to see. But my prayer for today, before we get into those different kinds of buckets, is to look at the origin and nature of sin. Where did it come from? And in the origin story of sin, what I want us to see is that there are key questions that lies were spoken, that our hearts believe, that lead us away. What is the nature of sin? What is the nature that robs our heart from finding its joy and satisfaction in God? What is the nature of sin? And and where do we need to be aware of in our own heart? of where we have believed those lies because we're surrounded by it constantly. The lies, the echoes of the original lie still reverberates through our culture today. Outside of us and even still within us. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you, if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. And and what I want us to see here is three questions and lies that have been spoken in response 
to these questions to help us discern in our own heart as we begin this journey together. So beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You won't surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So then the woman saw that the tree, it was good. It was good for food, that it was a, a delight to the eyes, that the tree was, was to be desired to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Within this story of the origin of sin within humanity, there's three questions I want us to ask and see how the nature of sin lies to us and causes us to not desire or to abide in Christ, but to abandon and mistrust, distrust God. The first one is this, what is true? What is actually true? What's the basis of knowledge? It's the very foundation for how we consider everything. Listen to, to the lie. Did God actually say? Like, what did he mean? Let's nuance the words, the, the phrases. You're not really going to die. He didn't mean die, die. I mean, God loves you, right? You're created in his image. He said it was good. If God's loving, he's not going to punish you. He wouldn't kill you. He loves you. God knows that, that, that when you eat of the fruit, you're going to get something that he's withholding. See, you can't trust God. There's more joy out there. You think you have joy, but, but there's more, and God's holding it back from you. It's good. God created it. Right? Didn't he say everything was good in the garden, and yet now he's telling you not to eat it? See, there's something that you'll gain that you're lacking, that God is withholding. But, but if you just take it, if you try it, what is true? Because God can't be trusted. He's, he's withholding something from you. You can determine what's true. You have to determine if this is true or not. And then you see how they responded. It's as though you can hear the motor to that trimmer that cut the hose starting up. Like when I'm in my, my office at my house and, and the lawn service comes, th there's something that happens in me when I hear that trimmer start. I'm like, are they going to cut the hose again? This is the image that I have in my mind as the serpent speaking, as it's undermining. Is it true? Can you trust God? 
It's like the motor to that tremor starting, and it's wanting to disconnect our trust and faith in God. He's withholding something. Does he really want good for me, or is he holding back? And you see the lies that then begin in Eve's heart. It's right. The tree is good. Like God said, everything in the garden, everything he created is good. Isn't this tree good? Isn't the fruit good? Why would God say, I can't have it? Look how beautiful it is. Doesn't its beauty justify? How can something so beautiful be called, be called wrong? And I'm going to die because I eat something that's beautiful that God created? No. I want it. I desire it. You see what's beginning to happen in the affections of the heart. And I wonder of where we look at the root of sin. How are the patterns of this lie taking root in your own heart? Like, do you trust God to tell you what is true? Is what he says, is it true? Do you trust it? What are you calling good that God has forbidden? What are you calling beautiful that God has said will destroy you? It's a delight to our eyes. It's fun to look at. I felt this growing up. I don't know if anybody else felt it. I grew up in a Christian home, so I remember thinking, the people who were out partying, I felt like I was missing out. Having sex before marriage, I felt like I was missing out. There were ways that I wanted to cheat and and cut corners as I was playing basketball and looking at scholarships and and performance enhancement drugs were offered to me. And I'm like, a shortcut sounds good. They're excelling when I'm not. Maybe if I just cut corners a little bit. Right? Sin at times looks good to us. We feel like we're missing out, and it is the echo of the lies from the Garden of Eden that begin to to prey on our hearts, to to call us, to want to pull away from trusting God, thinking that He is somehow withholding something from us. And and the thing that we can do sometimes as Christians is we're like, we're not going to do that, but I'm just going to daydream about it. I'm just going to think about it. I'm not actually going to have that affair but I'm going to play it out mentally. And, and we entertain the thoughts. We entertain the desires. Calling good what God has forbidden. And the fight for joy is getting back to the heart to say God is trustworthy. What He says is true. And what He says is right. God determines what's right. Because this is the second lie that we see in the Garden of Eden of what is right. What is the basis of moral standards in our culture, in our life, in my life? Who determines what's right and wrong? Think of what the lie is in the Garden of Eden. You'll be like God. What is that saying? That Eve would be all present? No, she would know good from evil. She would be self-existent and self-determining in herself to determine what's right and wrong. I don't need God. I don't need anybody else to tell me what's right and wrong. I'm God unto myself. I'll determine what's right and wrong. 
I mean, God gave me a brain, right? He created me in His image, right? Can't I determine for myself what's right, what's wrong? That I'll be like God. And and Eve saw that the fruit was good because it would make her wise. Because now she would be able to determine for herself what is right, what is wrong. And so Eve took the fruit. And I want you to picture, she's holding the fruit in her hand. She's feeling its form between her fingers. She lifts it up to her mouth expectantly, wanting to taste the the sweet nectar of what God was withholding from her. And as she bit down, she did not taste sweetness, but the bitterness of despair from disobedience. The dry dust. God was right. I was wrong. Darkness loomed. Death was approaching. But I wonder, in our culture, I believe that this is a critically important question we need to ask ourselves. Who or what determines what's right or wrong? Is it my own feeling towards something? Because we, we can talk about that. And like in church, we can say theoretically, like, yes, it's God. God determines what's right and wrong. But then we just go on with ourselves. But pause for a second. Do we actually functionally believe that? Does God really determine what's right and wrong? Is he really trustworthy in what he says is right and wrong? Or are we gods unto ourselves? You'll be like God. This is the mantra of our culture. And it began, there's a current mantra that we hear all the time that that began in 2018 at the Golden Globes when Oprah Winfrey was giving her acceptance speech. And she said this. She said, what I know for sure is that you feel joy. You feel joy in direct proportion to how connected you are to living your truth. Think about what that's really saying. You will experience real joy, satisfying joy in direct proportion to you living your own truth. You'll be your own God. When you determine what's right and wrong, this isn't just about your own story, that as you live your truth, as you live what's right and wrong for you, you'll experience joy. I wonder if Eve was to stand on the platform before our culture, holding the forbidden fruit in her hand and saying, this looks good to me. Right? Look how beautiful it is. God created this. Right? He created this. He called it good. And I desire it. I want it. I want to eat it. What would our culture say to her as she held that fruit in her hand? I think we have a clear answer of what that would be. They would applaud and celebrate it. These are the things that that have already been said in our culture to things 
that are completely forbidden by God. If you, th- th- this is what the culture says. If you're not living your truth, you're living a lie. Eve, if you're not living your truth, if you're not doing what's good for you, then, then you're living a lie. Eve, amazingly, unbelievably good things will happen when you follow your gut, when you follow your truth, when you follow your passion and your heart. Amazingly good things will happen. Do what's right for you, Eve. You don't need to get anyone else to agree with you, to agree with with your truth. You just need to live it, Eve. Don't worry about anybody else. You do you. We celebrate you and we applaud you. Strength comes, the world says, from living your truth. The true and to be true and authentic is your path to happiness and joy. You want joy, Eve? If you want happiness, then do what's right for you. You'll be like God. Do you hear the echoes of the original lie, the origin of sin that tempts us to declare what's right and wrong, not based on who God is and what His Word says, but what we ourselves determine as right and good and beautiful? Because what does God say? He's like, Eve, I want you to have life. Eve, I I want you to have joy. Don't eat of the fruit, Eve. When your lips touch it, when you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. You will die. You will know spiritual separation from me, Eve. You will experience physical suffering in life. You will physically die. You will die and your soul will live for eternity in separation from me, Eve. Don't eat of the fruit. The earth and all humanity that follows will fall into rebellion. Don't eat the fruit. And our culture applauds. You do you. Do what's right for you. Sin, at its root, seeks to disconnect us from trusting God at His Word, to tell us what is true and what is right. And then we become our own little gods to do what is right for us. Now, me, in this moment, what I want. And in it, in the end, it wants to redefine who we are. It, it rewrites the story of our identity to the question of, who am I? What is the source of, of my identity? Who am I? The lie wants to continue. The lie of sin from the garden. You'll be like God. Look, you're not going to be defined by those around you. You aren't defined by the expectations of God or anybody else. You're self-sufficient. You're self-existent. You're self-determining. You can determine what's right and wrong. You don't need anybody else. You are complete in and of yourself. Just look inside yourself. You have everything you need in you. That's who you are. 
is what sin says. Eve desired something that she felt like God was withholding from her. Right? You're going to know something. God knows that when you eat of it, you're going to know good and evil. There's something more. Just take the fruit. She thought there was something greater than what she had. But what she discovered and what Adam discovered and what has impacted all humanity since then is that when they bit into the fruit, because of sin, we have become slaves to sin. That they were free, but now they were enslaved to sin. Now they are in captivity. This is what it says in Romans 6.20, that you were slaves to sin. Jesus says everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin is bondage. Sin is captivity. Sin chains us down. This is what sin does. It promises satisfaction and it gives you slavery. True freedom is only found in Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. That is the only way we are made free from the bondage of sin and to follow Jesus, to abide in Him, to trust that His Word is true, to trust that His ways are right, is true and ultimate freedom. That is the joy that we fight for. That is the joy we call our hearts to rest in, to not go to the empty buckets, but to rest in Christ this is what I pray we continue to move towards together as a congregation. Because the question is not just who am I, but whose am I? See, the question of who am I is not a bad question. Who, who like, I think we all have asked ourselves this question. <laughs> growing up, like not just who my parents are or what my friends expect of me or who they are, but, but who am I? But there's two different ways we can approach this question. One will lead to deeper slavery. The other will lead to freedom. See, if we seek to answer the question, who am I? And we only look within ourselves. If we assume ourselves then to be self-existent, I don't need to be known by who I'm connected to. I'm, I'm me, independent. We're an orphan, an island. We determine for ourselves. We say, I'm self-sufficient. I can do all of this on my own. I don't need anybody. I don't need God or anybody else. But you're not going to survive. And then the guilt and shame and condemnation come in. And you become a slave to your own inadequacies. You say, I'm self-determined. I'm going to live according to my own truth, my own way. Make my own path. I don't need what God tells me or anybody else. but it tangles up our feet as we run through life and we realize we're not really free. Well, then we're a slave to our own desires, to, to whatever my heart wants, and that's not always good, and I'm constantly tripping over this ball and chain that I have tied to my foot of my own heart. I am a slave 
even to my own desires. If we seek to answer the question of who I am in prideful arrogance against God, we only find ourselves deeper and deeper in the prison of sin. But we can answer the question of who am I by understanding to whom we belong. That I am not self-existent, but I have been created by God for His glory and my joy. Right? We say that, that I am God's. That, that joy is resting in Him. It's being defined not by me. It's not that I'm self-existent, but I'm created. And that's a beautiful thing. That in Jesus, I'm not an orphan. I'm a son. A daughter. I'm in relationship. I'm not an enemy of God. In Jesus, I'm a friend of God. In Jesus, I'm not guilty or condemned. I'm innocent and free. In Jesus, I belong to Him. I've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. I was held in slavery and the ransom was paid for my freedom with Christ's blood. This is the gospel. This is the hope we have. Why? In all of these truths, why then would you go back to the empty bucket? When Christ said we are unified with Him, we are one with Christ, we are sons, we are daughters, we are forgiven. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let us live in the freedom. Let us walk in the freedom. Let us abide in Christ, the fountain, the faucet of living waters, that the garden of our hearts would flourish and grow. Why would we go back to the empty bucket to look for our hope, to look for our joy, to look for our satisfaction. This is the invitation before us through this series to cultivate a heart of joy in Christ that will identify ways that the Bible talks about ways in which our hearts are tempted to find their rest, their hope, their satisfaction in something other than God. And it's an opportunity then for us to examine our own hearts of the ways that we involuntarily or intentionally believe the lies that cause us to look elsewhere rather than Christ. It becomes an opportunity then to fight for joy, which is ultimately resting and abiding in Christ. What does that mean? How do we do that directly in reference to ways that my heart is tempted to falsely trust in other areas? My prayer that as we head into this series is that you would be praying for your own heart. What are ways that you are believing the lies from sin's origin? What is true? What is right? Who am I? These big questions. To come and to surrender ourselves before God and say, Lord, would you search my heart? Would you know me? Is what I'm experiencing now because, like, what does it look like to abide in you? What does it look like to, to rest in you? 
Where am I trusting in other things? My prayers just in this week to come before God with a humility, a willingness to allow him to search you and to know you. That our hearts would be led to rejoice in the hope and satisfaction that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time this morning, Lord, for this series through, through this summer. And Lord, just the reminder that sometimes I want to reduce sin to just a list of actions, but it is so, so much more into the attitude and posture of my own heart. And that's what leads me then to sin. So Lord, help me not just to make a list of right and wrongs, but help us to surrender our hearts before you, to search our attitudes, to search our affections of our heart, God, to help us to abide in you, to even understand what that means, how we do that, Lord, that we would experience life, the living waters of your presence, of your peace, of your presence with us, God. Would you lead us and guide us in these coming weeks to bring both conviction where conviction's needed and comfort as we abide in you. And in Jesus' name, amen.